Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. In this series, I'm sharing conversations with the leading lights, the sharpest wits and minds, the most rigorous thinkers and entertaining provocateurs in the weird and wonderful world of behavioural science. Humans are odd, curious animals who often bark up the wrong trees. We're contradictory, illogical and unpredictable. In A Load of BS, we address why that's so and lots of important and intriguing issues. The difference between knowledge and data in a fragile, overconnected world. The mind-boggling but strong correlation with consumption of mozzarella cheese and the number of civil engineering doctorates awarded. The power of analogies to solve wicked problems. The unconscious biases at play when we choose a bottle of wine. And the intransigence of neoclassical economic theory. I'm glad you're here for the ride. Today, my guest once more is Paul Craven. Paul is a financial services supremo whose enthusiasm for BS knows no bounds. His frame of reference is broad, his insights are founded on real research, and his experience at the money market's coalface means theory quickly matches practice. I shared part one with you two weeks ago when we discussed investors' decision-making biases, magic in business relationships, and we paused on the subject of generalization versus specialization. This is where we pick up as Paul talks table tennis, baking, and insects fanaticism. And stick around for musical musings including confirmation bias in Simon and Garfunkel and Paul's story in the quickfire round of meeting the late great Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts at Bermuda Airport. It's not your usual fan anecdote but rather teaches us something rather neat about breaking the ice. To get all my interviews, sign up to a load of bs.substack.com if you haven't already, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and if you want even more, go to sundaybs.substack.com where I share three simple bits of BS to make you sound clever on a Monday morning. Now on with the show. So just a very quick interjection there. If you want to be the best ping pong player in the world, it's pretty hard for you to be that, right? It's possible, but it's pretty hard. But if you if you are a polymath, I'm going to give you a stupid example, a really extreme example, okay? If you love stunning insects, okay? And let's think of a third, even more ridiculous example. And you're a wonderful baker, okay? Now I've come up with three completely different things there. So you're never going to be the best baker in the world. You're never going to be the world's best insect expert. You're not going to be the world's best ping pong player. But imagine if you do all those three things pretty well. You are actually going to be the best person in the world, almost certainly, at a combination of those three disciplines, right? Now, I'm, I'm deliberately coming up with stupid, extreme ideas. Now, I can't think of the top of my head someone who's an expert at ping pong, baking, and insects could do, but what that shows you is the sort of mindset required. But you will be the best in the world as a combination, because no one else will do those three things. So what I would encourage people to think about is, what can I be pretty good at in a number of different areas? Because immediately, I move up from being ranked 10 millionth in the world to probably being in the top 10, if I can find two or three subjects. You you mentioned my hobbies, magic and hickory golf. I wouldn't say I'm the best hickory golf magician in the world, but there aren't many of us to compete with. But you, you see the kind of point now, if you can actually do that in a business sense, or you could come up with something special. Again, I'm not ever suggesting these things are easy or a simple answer. I'm just suggesting it's worth thinking about and exploring some ideas. And you've heard of the famous bees waggle dance when most of the bees will fly from one direction based upon how a, a bee's waggling, but let's say 10% of them will fly off in a completely different direction. And that the 90% have gone off to find the 
rich flowers from which they can gather the pollen to make honey because that's where they've been before and they know that's the way to go and get it. But the 10% going the other way are literally going off to try and find new stuff. It's a kind of diversification thing. It's a real investment lesson here. Don't just assume the easy bit because you know it's there. It's called the exploit versus explore principle. Now, bees do it naturally in nature. How good are we human beings at doing it when it comes to our business? If we have a really good business model or a really good investment theme or a really good investment idea, what I mean, it's fine. Exploit it. That's what we should do. But don't rely upon it wholeheartedly because we need to explore as well as exploit and often send, send bees out in different directions. And again, the creative industry is sort of advertising and marketing are probably way ahead of the financial world in this sense, I think. But it's interesting. The whole thing is very interesting. It is. And I think, by the way, the internet opens the world up to all sorts of long tail interests and actually allows people to express those interests and find an audience. It's a parallel point to being a polymath and having a diversification of interest. But I think whether you're a philatelist or an insect lover or whatever it may be, and whether you want to combine those interests, technology can give you a space to express that. And I think that's quite powerful as well. I would want to make a final point on the Tetlock, which is I think at the heart of it was about conventional economists' lack of willingness to change their minds. And when you actually bring in laymen to do predictions who don't have ego and may indeed, as you say, be polymaths, a willingness to change your mind I think is a quality is a quality which then in the end allowed for more far more accurate prediction and a reason why many economists spend the whole of their careers just peddling one particular school of thought. That's um, a very interesting point, and you know I, I do think that when Danny Kahneman was given the Nobel Prize for Economics in two thousand and two, there were definitely lots of people that were not happy. I mean, economists because they said, well, he's more of a psychologist than anything else, and they couldn't accept the fact that a psychologist could be rewarded in this sphere. And of course, that's what got me very interested in him because I thought, well, what's he saying? So I went back and read some of his old papers from the 60s and 70s, which of course gets you into all the, ba- the some of the basic things. And it's absolutely fascinating. He is the kind of modern father, if you like, of behavioral science. Although I would have a shout out to Bob Cialdini, who before there was such a thing called behavioral science, his books on influence and persuasion, again, emphasizing the ethical importance of that, was sort of pure behavioral science long before the term really ever gained any popularity. And Cialdini's book on persuasion is probably, for me, the best book on sales that has ever been written. If anybody hasn't read it and they're involved with working with clients, relationships, uh, I'd recommend it. And again, emphasizing the ethical nature of the book's objective. There were six or seven, there's now seven, there were six in the original book, ways of, of, of persuading people. I mean, there's nothing really very new here because of course, a lot of it goes back to Aristotle. And Aristotle said there are three ways of persuading people to do something. There's an you know, ethos, which is who you are, what you represent, your company, it could be you as a person. There's logos, which is logic, essentially the argument, the discursive nature of I'm going to persuade you by being very logical and very sensible and you're going to nod your head and say, that's great. And I'll persuade you to do whatever I want you to do. And those are things that the investment industry or the financial industry is very good at, both of those. So I'm a big company. I've got lots of offices around the world. Let me tell you my way I invest. It makes perfect sense. And those are good. And by the way, I'm not saying ever diminish those. They're, they're both important in their own way. But ourselves, and the third way is pathos. Can you identify with your, in this case, your client? Can you understand what they're going through, what they're thinking about, what they're feeling? Because once you do that, rather than just throw logic and Spock-like instructions, of them or information. So, you know, think about the issue from the client's point of view. Again, it's this perspective idea. I'm coming from a different perspective. And I think where the where the investment industry is well behind others in this is they're not very good at pathos in the quite the same way. Now, listen, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but generally they, they focus on ethos and logos. I think all three should have a three points of a stall. Yeah, this is this is Cialdini's liking principle, perhaps, exactly. that you're r- referring to. And actually there are lots of there are nice examples there. You know, car salesmen, for example, who absolutely understand the liking principle 
people who could probably teach people in the investment world a thing or two about building relationships. Relationships matter more than transactions in my, that would be my adage. You know, that's one of the things I've learned from my career is it's very easy and not helped by the media. If you think about the media, if they want to have a, they want to show a picture of the city, they'll show people with two phones in each ear shouting down, buy, sell, buy, sell and chaos and everything else. Now in the real world, the city isn't like that. The real city is hopefully built on certainly in my in my area which is asset management for long-term pension schemes something a bit more commendable much more long-term it's built on i hope a lot of trust and sincerity and honest achievable objectives trying to pay pensions for the long term and i think this is where the idea that relationships matter more than transactions investment banks maybe there's a bit more transactional i don't want again i don't want to generalize too much but I, i think that if i was to offer some advice to anybody who goes into financial services it's really try and promote this idea that relationships matter because I think if people like you they'll talk to you if they trust you they'll entrust you with their money and we're, we're immediately going down a better road than that says look here's my price buy or sell bang done move on because I think over the long term it matters you mentioned car salespeople actually one of the best car salespeople in the states who's written books on the subject uh, he said that whenever someone comes into his parking lot or his car salesman he's thinking not of the car I'm hoping to sell them now I want to think about the next car I sell them after this one now you think if you're in that mindset immediately you're going to make sure that the first car you sell them is really good. You leave them a service they're going to be just think is amazing, going to come back for, and they'll come back to you for the second car. Now, just think about that. That's a really brilliant way of thinking. Even though you're looking for this car, I'm thinking really about selling you the next car in a good ethical way. And I love that way of thinking. So there's a story I tell, which is, it's humorous. It's an anecdote. It's maybe apocryphal, but I'm about Mark Twain. And, and Mark Twain was traveling in 19th century America, and he came across a small town. And on the edge of town, there was a kind of gang of teenagers and they, were, they they appeared to be bullying a little bit a younger child a younger boy and he went over and said what are you doing and they said mister look at this stupid young kid and he said what do you mean and they said he's really stupid watch this and they gave the little kid a dime and a five cents and as for those of you who know a dime is ten cents but it's smaller physically than the five cents coin and they said which one do you want to keep little kid and the kid looked at them both and said I want the big one holding up the five cents so the kids took back the ten cents and the dime and, and ran away and said told you he was stupid mister and so Mark Twain says to the kid, listen, you know, you really did make a mistake there. You are being a bit stupid. You should have taken the 10 cents, not the 5 cents. And the kid wipes away obviously fake tears and says, oh, but mister, he said, if ever I took the 10 cents, they wouldn't play this game with me every day. Now, I'm not suggesting that's an ethical business model, but the kid realizes a long-term relationship is better for him than a single transaction of taking the 10 cents. And it's a nice story. It's a nice story. It is a very serious point, though. I think if if I could encourage, again, people to think about lots of the good long-term stuff that financial services do, not just the short-term problems. And again, long-term good news doesn't really get much mentioned, but short-term problems always get a lot of headlines. It reminds me of Dan Ariely's discussion in his book, Predictably Irrational. He talks about social versus market norms, which I don't know whether you've you read that or, or come across that, but I think that it's a parallel there, read relationship versus transaction, and it characterizes the world by social exchanges and then market exchanges, each of which have different norms. So what Ariely is saying that in certainly in the business world, if businesses started thinking more in terms of social norms, in other words, building relationships, they'd realize quite quickly that social norms are the ones which build loyalty and trust more important, make people want to kind of reach out, extend themselves more than the degree to which businesses do as it stands to be more willing to be flexible, to be concerned, to be willing to pitch in. I think that's reflect some of the things that you've just been saying as a comparison. Let's talk a little about skill and luck. That feels very relevant to the world of investment. We can think about investing firstly, but let's by all means widen the discussion as an 
investor or financial market observer, how does one differentiate between skill and luck? Are the few fund managers who overperform year after year the few inevitable statistical survivors who've ridden their luck? Or do they have a markedly superior process? The expert on this is Michael Mabusen. And if you, he's written a wonderful book about skill and luck. And I think the best way to try and answer that question is to illustrate it with one of his ideas, which is, I think he calls it the skill luck spectrum. And I want you to imagine that you've got a line on a page in front of you. And on the left is pure 100% luck. On the right is pure 100% skill. And so what activities can you put along that spectrum that represent different levels of luck and skill? And so, for example, the, the 100% luck could be something like going to a casino or roulette or something like that, where you literally cannot affect the outcome of anything. It relies on pure probability. What could be 100% skill? Well, the examples he cites as being the best example of a pastime or a sport that is most skillful is chess. The idea being that this is probably the, the most skillful game in terms of adding value through your own intellectual brain power. You could also have the 100 meters, you know, Usain Bolt type thing. And then what Mabusin does is he puts various sports based on stats and variability around the mean in each of the areas. So as a general rule, for example, individual sports where there's one person involved are more skillful than team sports where there's more variables but I'm generalizing but different sports indeed have different so basketball it's American things it's basketball baseball football etc but again just think about chess being the skill end and going to a casino being the luck end now you say well how do you know where to put something on that spectrum and he's got a brilliantly simple question and and again this idea of invert always invert which is a wonderful piece of advice always think of the opposite of the the question if you like Mabusa says the way to try and answer that question is not to say how skillful are you at doing all this it's can you deliberately lose can you deliberately do badly so let's just take our, our extremes can a chess player deliberately do badly yes it's easy in the world to play some deliberately bad moves can you say molt run slower deliberately yes he certainly can he just slows up a bit and that's all there is to it let's go to the 100% luck end can you deliberately lose well actually you probably will lose in a casino you can't deliberately lose you, you could be very lucky and, and win on blackjack or whatever it may be. And so Mabusin's definition of this skill luck is how easy it is to deliberately do badly. And the easier it is to deliberately do badly, probably it's more more skillful thing you're doing. And I often, when I talk about this on stage, I look at the audience and say, think about the roles you do. Can you deliberately do badly? I hope you can, I say, because if you do, that means you're probably involved in skillful employment. But if your job doesn't allow you to deliberately do badly because of all the checks and balances or whatever it may be, or because of the menial nature of your job or whatever, then you're not, not in a very skillful job. And it's a brilliant way of thinking. Now, the interesting thing about investment, which is where your question started, Mabusin puts investment as an industry closer to the luck end than the skill end. Now, let's just unpack that a little bit. He's looking at the industry as a whole, I in aggregate. Now, I kind of think it's probably fair to say there's a zero-sum gain in the investment world, probably. You add in the fees as well, it will be to the left-hand side of the 50% mark. So I think he's too pessimistic. And why do I think that? Because I've known plenty of individual skilled investors in my career, and both firms I've worked with, and indeed other firms, who have been consistent good. Now, there is nobody who is anywhere near the chess thing because, as I say, they wouldn't even be bothering to invest in more than a few years if they were. They'd be, But they will get it right little and often. Most of the good ones I know have uh, get it right little and often. They're not looking for big bets. Now, the problem with the investment industry is if you have someone that has two or three years of stellar performance, and I think you alluded to this in your question or hidden behind your question, there was this, that could just be pure luck. It could be pure luck. And often, of course, what they does is those people attract huge inflows of money, certainly from the retail sector. 
sector if they're running unit trusts or mutual funds. So I think what we're trying to do with trustees in pension funds or whatever is try and differentiate between skill and luck. What is the evidence for this performance is it like to be long term now nobody again no investor i know gets it right every year and then what it tells you they do and again one of the things some of the ponzi schemes we've seen in history no one ever questioned why certain people just making money every year there has to be a reason why it's usually fraudulent if they're making money consistently every single month every single quarter every single year but the good investors will make enough money consistently enough over a long period of time for that to come forward the question is can you identify them as a potential investor in them and obviously that's one of the things that a lot of us try and do in our job but I think that most of the best investors I know are actually quite humble. They genuinely are because they recognize they make mistakes and they recognize that minimizing errors is as important as maximizing the winners. And there's a wonderful, uh, I almost call it investment philosophy, which was originally written in 1975 by Charles Ellis. And it was, uh, I think, a five or six page paper called The Loser's Game. It was called Winning the Loser's Game. And what Ellis did back in then, and he was using as much mutual fund data as he could find in the US when he wrote this, he essentially looked at the, those that were the top of the tables over any long-term time periods. And his conclusion was that investment in aggregate is a loser's game. So to win the loser's game, to get to the top, you basically mustn't mess up. If you don't mess up badly, you will go to the top of the performance tables because others will slip down through making bad mistakes over the long term. And why it was so fascinating to me is when I first read this in 86, it was given to me by a senior director of Schroeder's called Keith Nevin, who dumped it on my desk and said, read this, Paul, it's useful. And I, here I am quoting it 30-something years later. And it's likened it to things like playing tennis, amateur tennis. So let's just understand what we mean by that. Tennis, you can win a point by either hitting and winning yourself. That could be an ace or a wonderful shot the opponent doesn't touch, cross court, volley, doesn't matter what it is. Or you win the point because the opponent loses it. Otherwise, makes an unforced error, hits the ball in the net or over the end of the court. And if you ever watch, or those of you that play tennis, watch your stats on this. It's really interesting. Most points you win are the other opponent making a mistake, not you hitting a winner and, and vice versa. So in other words, you're trying to avoid mistakes rather than play brilliant shots. Now, it's important to play good shots, etc. I'm not saying don't hit the ball back well. I'm saying if you actually analyse what when the point ends, it's a loser rather than the winner in most cases. It works pretty well in the professional game as well but it works superbly well in the amateur game Ellis's point is investors need to get the ball back investors must stop trying to smash the ball or ace the ball or you know have an amazing incredible year and when I see an, an asset manager my first thought is good well done them they may be skillful they may be lucky we don't know yet after one year what we do know is if it is requiring huge amounts of risk or volatility to get to that return they are basically trying to in tennis terms smash the ball watch out that normally ends in tears and it's the little and often approach those that can outperform by a little amount every year it's the power of compounding what was it Charlie Munger said brilliant line he said the first rule of compounding never interrupts it unnecessarily and that is the way to win the losers game just do the, try and do little and often don't try and smash the ball too hard and, and interesting Ellis did it also for flying he looked at the military strategies and, and although he didn't come up with this quote it came up from a, a pilot from the 50s I think my favourite investment piece of advice if I had to offer one piece of investment advice to anybody starting in the industry it would be this it would be a quote about flying there are old pilots and there are bold pilots but there are no old bold pilots now let's do that in investment terms there are old investors and there are bold investors there aren't many old bold investors and so just be careful how you start off with your <laughs> investments you must hit that ball back and be there tomorrow next month next week next year and, and hopefully next decade and, and beyond and I think that's that again is I know we've drifted off the luck skill thing but I think it's totally relevant to it I think the most skillful investors recognize the importance of longevity which means getting up tomorrow morning to play the game 
game, getting up next week to play the game, getting up next year to play the game, getting up next decade to play the game. And that patience is, is something that the best investors have alongside, I hope, a lot of humility. Absolutely. It, it reminds me of the satisficing decision-making strategy, which is perhaps an equivalent to getting the ball back into court consistently, which is about being consistently good enough, being consistently adequate, e.g. I choose to eat at McDonald's, not because it's the optimal culinary experience, but because it's predictable, it's uncontroversial in a group setting, and it's safe. I'm unlikely to get ill, indigestion and guilt aside. Perhaps that's a culinary equivalent of the loser's game in some way. But I think that's a lovely note to pause the main part of the conversation on, and perhaps we'll conclude with a few quick fire questions, if that's okay with you. Please go ahead, yeah. Right. Firstly, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Well, I had my birthday yesterday, so I've, I've been inundated with kindness yesterday. And I think, and it will sound terribly corny and terribly cliched, but I genuinely mean, I mean, I've got three boys and you know, they often would come down and just surprise me for my birthday or they'd turn up unexpectedly and then they'd plan it themselves, the three of them, and they all, they all live away from home now. So it's things like that. I can't, I'm funny hard to single out one, but when, when you get surprised by those you love dearest and they kind of reciprocate and give you a bit back, nothing is kinder than that, definitely. That's great. What's your most powerful memory? I think it was probably gosh in terms it's interesting because I, I, th- I think of that in two ways one is sort of news stories so things that that really impacted my consciousness and I think 1969, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, I do remember the excitement, the buzz going around the black and white TV. I didn't necessarily understand it. I was about four or five years old. So that was probably the most powerful external memory that I remember is man landing on the moon. So I was obviously too young for Kennedy's assassination, which probably would be what most people a bit older than me would remember. The most powerful personal memory is probably, again, I'll, I'll revert to the kids because it's them being born and growing up. One of the things about getting older is, is a lot of your good stuff kind of blends into one and merges into one and I think about that a lot is that it's very hard to highlight individual things now and quite the same I might have done when I was younger I'd go oh the most fantastic football game or the most fantastic party or whatever it may be my age now having just turned 57 I, I kind of look back on lots of things it's blurry possibly because my memory is not as good as it was but it's actually I think blurry for the right reasons is that some of the good stuff does appear to merge with it and, and obviously family for me has been probably the most important part of my life as I've got to 57 tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know my mother was married to the most then best drummer in the world before she met my father. And interestingly, we're recording this on the day of the day after Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones died. Um, Charlie Watts, pretty good drummer with the Stones, let's, let's not deny it. Um, I had the pleasure of bumping into him once at in front of the Bermuda Airport. And I was very aware that if you, of course, if you bump into a celebrity, the last thing you want is some fawning, idiotic young guy saying, you know, I love the Stones, sign this order, whatever. So I, I, he was walking, we were walking together down towards the lounge as it, as it was. And I said, excuse me, he was with his wife Shirley and I said excuse me Mr Watts and I called him Mr Watts I said what do you think about Phil Seaman and he looked at me and said how do you know Phil Seaman I said he was my mother's first husband and immediately all his kind of guard dropped and he just relaxed and we had a lovely chat and I had to confess I'd never met Phil Seaman because it was before my time and he was the best jazz drummer in the world Uh, and, and so many people say that from Ginger Baker to what's to anybody and it was just it, what, again what it shows you is uh, again I, listen I'm not trying to say this is the way to, to ingratiate yourself with people but try and find a way to uh, it's slightly different unusually it would have been so easy just to say you know you're a rolling stone I'm a some guy here can I have a selfie but I asked him what do you think of Phil Seaman I was lucky I had, a, had an intro it, he just stopped and, and relaxed and smiled and then was amazed that there was a connection between me and Phil Seaman albeit a pretty tenuous one so there you are there's the fact that's probably no one knows about me that is a great story and of course it's Charlie Watts 
though. I admit that. But, uh, but no, I'll it's tell, great. I'll tell you what I can get. No, it's great. Of course, Charlie Watts' primary musical passion was jazz, yep. ahead of rock and roll. Yep. Which book do you gift most regularly? The one I've enjoyed the most recently is The Ape That Understood the Universe. There was a time, which, which is uh, Steve Stewart Williams, this is brilliant. Very, very interesting book. And I, I would certainly recommend that. It starts off with a premise that an alien has come to Earth and is trying to understand human habits. And so it looks at them in a, in, in a kind of slightly strange way. And it is equally funny and in, insightful, I would say. Obviously, I gave away Thinking Fast and Slow quite a lot a few years ago when it first came out. I think I can say this. The problem with that is that if you ask people, have they read Thinking Fast and Slow in an audience, as I often do, they'll put their hands up and say, yep. And I'll say, you keep your hands up if you finish the book. And most hands go down because it's quite a tough read. It's, you know, there are better books on, so there are more accessible books on behavioral science than, than even though Thinking Fast and Slow is probably the open inverted commons, the behavioral science Bible, close inverted commons. There are probably better books for those that want to get into the whole thing. And you mentioned Dan Ariely's brilliant, Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, a wonderful perspective on lots of Babel stuff, which I love. But I think The Eight Dance of the Universe is the one I've given away most this year. And, and the David Epstein book is brilliant as well. Yeah, I agree. I'm enjoying that a lot myself uh, right given, now. Given a few of those away. Well, Great. What's your Desert Island music? A few years ago, I did 10 albums that I would take with me. Now, I know it's not the same as Desert Island Discs where you've got to pick those eight songs, but the, the albums would be, there'd be two Beatles albums, an album by the jam called Sound Effects, which is kind of the cliche, but it's the kind of the record of my youth. Uh, there'd be some Carol King in there. There'd be some Kate Bush in there. Probably be a Stones like Greatest Hits album in there. The sort of classics, I like The Doors, throw in some Dylan. I mean, I'm pretty conventional, traditional sort of music. My eldest son, who was born in 1992, doesn't think there was any music before 1992. So he scoffs at my musical memories, but the Beatles would be pretty high up there, I have to say. That is a very comprehensive and well-prepared thought-through answer. Wow, that's great. I love most of that, actually, myself as well. Sorry, one of my favourite albums of all time. And in fact, if you forced me to pick one, I'd probably go Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water the album because it contains the best line ever on confirmation bias in the song The Boxer and the line is still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest now if that isn't confirmation bias tell me what is yeah agree that's very good and finally winding down away from work tell me a bit more about your hobbies and I, and I think I know where this one's going to go well I think the two hobbies that I'm, I've certainly put on my, my Twitter account which is at cravenpartners.com I love magic I've always enjoyed thinking about it watching it and in the last few decades I love performing it. I perform for friends and family and indeed I've got a few things when I'm talking about behavioural science. But I'm careful when I'm standing on the stage in front of people uh, not to say, let me show you a magic trick if they come to hear me talk about behavioural science. I might say, ladies and gentlemen, can we all try a psychological experiment? And I'll do something that involves their minds and get the reaction. It, it often will be a magic trick, but it'll be deliberately designed to show them how the mind does and doesn't work very well. So I love magic and performing and, and, and reading and writing about it. And then the other slightly quirky hobby I have is golf but not just any old golf. Although I play all golf with steel clubs I'm, I, I love playing hickory golf and what does that mean it means using clubs from the 1920s effectively hickory shafted golf clubs different game different tactics the clubs work slightly differently it's the same principles but it's a wonderful way and we can even dress up sometimes in plus twos and uh, farewell jumpers and uh, get together and, and I, I play in the English National Hickory Competition for example over at Rye I think I came 17th or something last year it's a hobby it's a way of having a lot of fun and a wonderful sport and it reminds me of one of my favourite quotes from a golfer from that era, Walter Hagen, who once said, you're only here for a short visit, so don't hurry, don't worry, and be sure to stop and smell the flowers along the way. Well, Paul, that's a wonderful note to end on. And so thank you so much for joining me today. It's been hugely entertaining and I've learned an enormous amount. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. 
And there, the second part of my conversation with Paul Craven ends. I hope you'll agree, Paul's deep, practical experience in investment management brings with it wisdom, sensitivity and sympathy as he reflects on relationships and transactions, skill versus luck, and the value of building a broad set of interests versus over-specialisation. These are mind-expanding conversations, I hope you'll agree. If you enjoyed it, please sign up to a load of bs.substack.com if you haven't already. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and why not do something kind and give me a five-star review? Thank you. Until next time. All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. When I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers in the quiet of the railway station, let him scare. Seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go Looking for the places only they would know Asking only workmen's wages, I come looking for a job, but I get no offers. Just to come on from the wars on 7th Avenue. I do declare there were times when I was so lonesome, I took some comfort there. La, 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 la. Shame, I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still.